unloaded our stuff in grumpy haste and left us there, saying that he had to make it back before nightfall because he didn't trust the headlights of his old truck. He was in such a hurry to get away that he drove off without shutting the passenger side door, which flopped open. As he reached over to shut it, he stepped on his brakes, causing the door to pinch his hand. He roared a curse as he furiously stomped on the gas to get the hell away from that goddamn hole of a goddamn slum. But the truck stalled, and a car behind him sounded its irritated horn, so he shouted at the driver to go to hell and start it up again. And he drove off, pounding his good fist on the steering wheel, glad to see the end of his wife's goddamn freeloading cousin and her goddamn brats. Mother and I exchanged glances and couldn't help smiling. My father's letter had said that we should wait for him on the steps of the building because he was planning a big surprise for us. But now Mother was tired of sitting there with people peering at us from windows and stoops all around. She rose to go inside and look for him, but I grabbed her wrist. Like most kids, I loved surprises, and I didn't want her to ruin this one. Let's wait just a little while longer. A couple of boys detached themselves from a knot of kids and sauntered past our stoop, disdainfully eyeing our cardboard boxes and our shoddy furniture, then letting their sassy eyes slide over me. I knew that my short pants and knee socks made me an object of scorn to these two boys dressed in knickers. From school I was familiar with those universal rituals among boys when they puppy-sniff one another for the first time measuring and hefting for rank and dominance. I could tell that the smaller of the two boys, a big-eared kid about a year older than I, was wondering if this skinny new kid would turn out to be a regular guy or a sissy, if I would fight my way out of schoolyard challenges or run to the teachers. I kept my eyes on him as he strolled by, but I held him in a soft, tired look. To look hard-eyed would be to send a challenge. To avoid his eyes would be to submit. Boys are born with this canine pack-hunter's instinct for cast and nipping order. After the kids had passed, one of them crossed the street and spoke to a flat-faced, boneless woman sitting on her stoop, obviously his mother, and I could see she was asking him about us, especially about my mother, who wasn't anything like the faded marshmallow mothers of other kids. My mother was young and slim and had short, bobbed hair. She could dance and run and play games, and she wore slacks in an era when few women did. I don't know what the kid said, but his mother sniffed in a way that was both competitive and dismissive. I was used to that sort of reaction to my mother, but still sensitive about it. It wasn't that I wanted her to be the same as other mothers— I was proud of her youthful good looks and her feisty independence, but I sometimes wished she could be different in a less obvious way, because it's hard having a mother who's different. Some bigger boys, fourteen or fifteen years old, loitered in front of a corner store diagonally across the street from our stoop. Fully aware of the gaggle of girls who admired them from two stoops away and whom they ostentatiously ignored, the boys talked loudly, pushed one another in gruff plague, snorted out forced laughs, and repeatedly glanced at their reflections in the corner store window with satisfaction, although now and then one of them felt obliged to hook a comb out from his back pocket and drag it through his brill-creamed hair, then press the sides into place with a caressing palm. 
They played an endless round-robin of that finger game in which paper covers rock, rock smashes scissors, and scissors cut paper. Known by different names in various parts of the country, but called Rochambeau in the urban northeast by generations of kids who had no idea that a French general who had helped our infant republic defeat the British at Yorktown had been immortalized in a child's game, much less how to spell the chanted sound as they threw their fingers out on the bow of the third syllable. The loser of Rochambeau had to let the winner knuckle him, hit him on the top of the head as hard as he wanted to with the knuckle of his middle finger. The one who got knuckled would snort disdainfully, although the pain sometimes dampened his eyes with fugitive tears, which he quickly blinked away as he rearranged his hair in the store window. Two of the boys were smoking. The biggest one, who was the leader, and a small ugly one who played the role of flunky and clown. They smoked like kids new to smoking do, trying to appear supremely casual, but fussily examining the burning ends of their cigarettes with grave frowns and tapping off the ash more frequently than it could gather. These older boys wore long trousers and were bareheaded, while the younger boys of the block were in knickerbockers and caps. Only very young boys wore short pants. Except for me, of course. The principal bane of my life was my mother's need to dress my sister and me better than other kids, in compensation, I suppose, for our lack of a father and a secure breadwinner. Because she couldn't afford new clothes, the hand-me-downs my sister and I wore were always cleaner and more freshly ironed than those of our playmates, Yet another of those differences that kids will not endure. The strange new sounds and gestures of life and play that I observed with a mixture of fascination and malaise from our stoop that first afternoon would, in the course of the eight and a half years I was to live on North Pearl Street, become the unremarkable and unremarked ambience of my block, with its noise, its squalor, its childhood rites and ordeals, the awkward rutting rituals of its adolescence, and its shoals of dirty brats with runny noses, nits, and impetigo, playing their screaming games of kick the can or stick ball, sassing icemen and pushcart vendors, blocking traffic, and exchanging insults with truck drivers who wanted to get through. On that first day, the game of stick ball in the middle of the street broke up when second base drove off. The preening boys in front of the corner store drifted away down Livingston Avenue toward the deserted warehouses between the freight yards and the river where, as I would learn by being one of them, they would snoop around the dripping, echoey, broken glass, crunchy underfoot, piss-smelling vastnesses of abandoned buildings. And they would chuck stones at the few window panes that remained tauntingly intact. North Pearl Street was a typical slum of the first half of what would be called the American Century. These slum blocks were identical in their essence and social effects, varying only in the cultural decoration of their ethnic concentrations. Pearl Street was Irish. More precisely, it was bog Irish. Pearl Street was the sort of place that appeared laundered and tempered with humor and hokey sentimentality in films starring the dead-end kids, sassy-mouthed but essentially good boys who only needed one of Hollywood's grittier stars to sort them out and make honest, hard-working citizens of them. But the violent, reality-calloused kids of North Pearl would have scoffed 
at the efforts of a tough but warm-hearted Father Pat O'Brien or a wryly knowing Father Spencer Tracy to save them by opening a boys' club and showing them that priests could be regular fellas. While we were sitting on the stoop, anticipating the surprise my father had prepared for us, a thin layer of milky cloud began to spread over the sky, and the chill of a March afternoon settled on us. I was ready to give in and suggest that we go inside to look for my father when the front door of a building across the street flew open, banging against the brick wall, and out poured a yelping, shrieking pack of children belonging to what we would come to know as the Mians, a wild, drunken, dim-witted tribe that inhabited three contiguous houses on the east side of the street. All the Mians were related in complex and unnatural ways. The four old Mians, two brothers and two sisters, had produced half a dozen loud, dirty, boozy Mian adults, and random, transient matings between and among this second generation of brothers, sisters, cousins, and their parents had spawned some twenty offspring, who combined among themselves and with the earlier generations to produce a scattering of son, nephew, uncle, cousin, grandsons, and daughter, niece, aunt, cousin, granddaughters. While all the Mians had earned their family name at least twice over, only one of them was called Mrs. Mian. The rest were known by their full names, Old Joe Mian, the tribal chief, Young Joe Mian, the heir apparent, Patrick Mian, the dangerous one, Maeve Mian, the nasty one, or Bridget Mian, the willing one. Ironically, the one called Mrs. Mian on the block was the only woman